You're getting a whole lot of the Moses Washington contingent today, aren't you? So, but um, I like when he sings. I'm like, mm-mm. So, thank you for that beautiful music. Thank you, musicians, as well. Thank you, all of you, for being here. Thank you for Pastor Craig for being in my family, for being here as well. Um, before I get started, I definitely want to thank you as a church. I haven't had an opportunity to do that. Um, all of, some of you might know some of the things that Kahari and I went through in January, and from the bottom of all of our family's hearts that are here, I wanted to thank you. Um, I will, you know, the support, the prayers, the texts, the announcements in church all really made a difference when we were going through that time. And with that, one day I'll be able to tell the testimony here. It's still raw, but I will one day, I promise. But with that being said, you know, how many of you have been watching the news lately or listening to it? How many of you are unsettled? Yes? It's been a little concerning out in these streets, as they would say, right? It's really concerning. And so I came up with this. Our world is absolutely absurd. I don't get what's going on. I don't understand it. Some of the most of the time I don't agree with it. And we are living in it. We have all kinds of things happening. Native American rights are going on. We had a global pandemic where there was controversies around it and millions of people died. We had genocide going on in Myanmar. We have global warming and the things all surrounding that and our earth is being destroyed. We have controversies about vaccines. We have controversies in the government. We have controversies about um, women's reproductive rights. We have controversies about police brutality and we are at it, at it, at it, at it. Now, I don't know about you, but that starts, I start feeling it in my body. My hands start clenching. I start getting tense. And all I do is I look around and I'm like, <laughs> right? Have a little help from the comedian Kevin Hart. What is going on? How do we as Christians live in a world when we are looking out and saying, what is going on? And then, you know, a lot of times what happens is we say, how in the world can reading the Bible or Jesus help us out here? In the fact that, what did they know? Like, reading the Bible about, you know, a fish and you know, someone got swallowed by How is that helping us now? Well, the reality of it is, Jesus knew a little something about politics, didn't he? So let's look at the politics of that time. And things that shouldn't have been politics became politics in that time. Does that sound familiar? You know? So this is what our um, Europe looks like in today's um, world. And uh, 
in the Roman time, and you know where Italy is, the Roman Empire was the big government at the time. They were the ones that were leading. They were the ones that were conquering. They were the ones that had the power. Money and chariots and armies and force. They had it all. And they had government. And that little circle here, that's where most of Jesus' life really was. Um, a lot of it was in that little strip of the Roman Empire. And that is an, a map of that little strip. Now, as you can see, you probably some places that you recognize, um, such as Jerusalem and Bethany and Capernaum and Galilee and Samaria, and you see some names that you recognized. Well, that was Jesus' stomping grounds, that little strip in the Roman Empire. Now, Looking at the politics and government of that day, let's see what they were going through. So they had an emperor in Rome. That's where the Senate was and all of those buildings and all kinds of power was going on in Rome. Then you have a Roman governor, which was kind of the local kind of guy of the sections. So there were different people, and I can say guy with full force because we all know it was going to be a guy, right? So then they had after that, now in that strip that we talked about geographically, there were client kings. So basically, now we're getting into the Jewish rule. So you had the kind of Roman rule, now we're getting into the Jewish rule. So you had a client king, and I put some names there because you would recognize these in the biblical stories. Then you would have the Sanhedrin and the high priest. There's a lot of legalities here, isn't there? So Jesus knew politics. Now let's talk a little bit about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin really was a group of people that met in a specific place, the Chamber of the Hewn Stones. That was the area of the temple they met. Now, doesn't that sound like some kind of fantasy book here? The Chamber of the Hewn Stones, right? That, but it was that spectacular. And they were a group. There were lesser Sanhedrin. There were greater Sanhedrin. They could be up to 71 people, and they always had an odd number because why? because they had to vote. This was a tribunal. They ruled over civil things, criminal things, and of course what? Religious things. They were appointed, not elected, and what they said went and it affected everybody. Does that sound a little familiar, the Sanhedrin? Elected people making rules not, not elected, appointed people making rules, right? So it's funny, looks very Grecian. However, that's actually not, that's not an ancient building. That is in Washington, D.C. right now, okay? It is a building that is actually formed like an ancient building. And I'll leave that right there. And so with that, not only did they have the Sanhedrin, 
But in Jesus' day, they also had the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees weren't um, a big group, but can I say they were a loud one? And they were extremists. Loud extremists. So remember how I said Jesus knew something about politics? We also know that the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were after Jesus. They were after him. And because why? A lot of the reason is because they were ruling religious things in the name of God, and Jesus came and said, hey, you're not really telling the truth all the time here, right? Some of the things you're doing are wrong. And he was showing the people a different way. And guess what? People were listening. They were listening. Now, have any of you ever witnessed someone being told off before? Told off? If you haven't, just watch one of those housewives things, you know, whatever. But um, that happens probably every episode. But someone really being told off, like, at it. Like, not just, you know, just a little bit. Like, rip your face off, throw it on the ground, tell you off, right? I think we've all kind of seen that kind of thing. And you know what? Jesus did just that in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. He got it, and he went after them. And I'll share you some excerpts, but I want to encourage you to read Matthew 23, and you're like, whoa, Jesus did not mince words. Here he said, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So he's saying they are leaders. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but here we go, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tell you what to do, but they don't do it. Now, what's interesting, um, there was a civil rights activist named James Baldwin. And he has a great quote that he said, I do not, I cannot believe what you say because I see what you do. But they do, but what they do, they do not practice what they preach. He goes further on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! He did not mince words here. He goes on, You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Are we in a place right now where some of our Christian brothers and sisters are saying, You can't go to heaven, and you can't go to heaven, and you can't go to heaven? Are we shutting the door of the heavenly kingdom in people's faces? You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who were trying to. He did not mince words. It's like, here's your face back, right? So... He goes on to say in verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, 
you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Basically what he's saying here, not the big things. You even force people to give a tenth of the little things, just the little things. You nitpicky people. You're doing that, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which is what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Compassionate, caring. Can we just call this love? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. This last one is hilarious to me. Have you ever saw someone told off and there was a real zinger and you start laughing? But, you know, that's terrible to do. But what is he saying here? A gnat is this big, right? You strain out that, but you swallow an entire camel, this um, basically... Not a, um, it's not an animal that is clean, right? You strain out a gnat and you swallow this entire unclean animal. He, again, here's your face. Please take it and walk away, right? That's what he did in the light of politics. Again, here's your face. I don't know what to tell you, but that's what Jesus did. But Jesus did not only speak truth to power like that. What did he do? In his basically inaugural sermon or speech, um, the Sermon on the Mount was basically his manifesto of his ministry, right? And he told us whose side he was on. And I'll tell you right now, after what I wrote, what I just told you, it wasn't the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, right? He said his people were the poor in spirit, the people who mourn, blessed are the weak, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and people who were insulted and falsely accused. Those were his people. Those are the people that he blessed. Not the leaders that were sitting in the chamber of the hostels. What we can say is that absurdity is constant and unique in our world. You probably in your mind as I've been talking have made connections to what you're seeing and feeling today. We are in rough times and so was Jesus. And it is completely, completely absurd. You know, there was, there's a lot of things that we can learn. Um, there was a Senate race going on um, in early American history um, in Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois. And um, it was a young 50, 49-year-old Abraham Lincoln who was running for the Senate. Now, we can definitely talk about some of his motivations and some of his, you know, there are issues with Abraham Lincoln, too. However, he kind of set a stage of his campaign and his platform in this race for Senate in Illinois. Now, he did lose the race, and one of the reasons was because of the speech that he gave on the Senate floor. Now, what we do know about Abraham Lincoln 
he actually was one of the big drivers of what? Abolition of slavery, right? So here he said, setting the ground stage of, and this is when we have the North and the South and we have people who are slave owners and people who were, it was a mess. The country was a mess. And what he did is he said, he stood up on the Senate floor in a famous speech of his and said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He back then knew that whatever is going to happen, we have to do it together. We have to do it together. And do you know what? This powerful quote from Abraham Lincoln. I mean, think about it. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We are living in a world where these are all our brothers and sisters. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And you know what? He did say this on the Senate floor, but he was quoting Jesus himself. This is actually from the Bible. This is in Mark 3, 24 and 25. If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Now, what was the circumstance in which Jesus actually said this? So we have some scribes from Jerusalem going all the way up to Capernaum, where Jesus was at the time, and basically went there to discredit him. Jesus had now, at this time in his life, had gotten a reputation of healing people and creating a stir and a ruckus that was against maybe some of the norms of the day. And what they did is they went to where he was and started telling people, this, this, this Jesus of yours is actually, how can he actually throw out demons and excise demons is because he is working with Satan himself. Can you imagine telling Jesus, the son of God, you're working with Satan to throw out all these demons? And this is where Jesus comes in with, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So they went after him, after him in such an ugly way. And can we say absurdity can be very ugly? And they used a tactic. Now we call it ad hominem attack. That's the type of attack or strategy the scribes did. Now what is an ad hominem attack? directed against a person rather than the position they are maintaining. They could not go after him for healing people, for um, throwing demons out of a person. They could not go after him for what he was doing. So what do they do? They go after him as a person because they have no other argument and they made it up. Does that sound familiar? And what we're seeing today, we go after people for made-up stuff sometimes, and we're watching it before our eyes. He knew what it was like to have an ad hominem attack. It's interesting, also in U.S. history, there was a president named Andrew Jackson. 
And during that time, the Native American tribes were still, of course, living all over the United States. I want to tell you a story about the Cherokee Nation. So the Cherokee Nation um, lived in the southern, southeast of America. And this is when they were trying to move and push Native Americans off of their land. So what happened was they wanted to push them, or, well, first of all, they actually said you can stay, but then gold was found on their land, so then, of course, now you got to go, right? So in his first inaugural address, and you can read here, um, but Andrew Jackson actually said to observe toward the Indian tribes within our, our limits, isn't that interesting, our limits, a just and liberal policy, and to give the humane and considerate attention to their rights and their wants, which is consistent with the habits of the government and the feelings of the people. Sounds good. Fourteen months later, he was the same person standing in Congress trying to push forth what is called the Indian Removal I won't get into my problems with using the term Indian, but you can just imagine, right? But that's what it was called, right? The Indian Removal Act. And that bill actually forced Native Americans to leave their lands. Now, when this was all going on and he's making all these speeches and he was a big proponent and he was politicking, you know, for the vote and everything, um, what was interesting it's interesting he's on the, dollar, the $20 bill, right? His face is actually on money. Anyway, right? So with that being said, in his speech to Congress, he actually says this. And is it supposed that the wandering savage has a stronger attachment than his home than the civilized Christian? Can you see this could be looked at as an ad hominem attack as well? They can't say you're doing anything wrong. You're on land. You're thriving in that land. You're nurturing and honoring the land. So we have to say and call them wandering savages to take the humanity out of them. And then we are the civilized Christians. I can't believe what you say because what? I see what you do. You can see, you can read the rest of his, his speech to Congress. There's a lot more than this. This is just an excerpt. But again, an ad hominem attack. While he was trying to gain, uh, basically, um, support for this act, there was a Native American um, Cherokee named Junaluska. Junaluska actually fought in battle side by side with Andrew Jackson and at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and saved Andrew Jackson's life. So when Junaluska heard about all of these things, he went to Washington and say, I need to talk to Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson refused to see the man who saved his life. So what happened because of this? It passed. The act passed. 
And what happened is in 1838, they were forcibly removed from their land and they were hunted like animals, the Cherokee, in their homes. They were hunted, imprisoned, assaulted, and some of them even murdered to get them all in one place to gather them all. And they were forced out of the homes just with the clothes on their back to then go to where the United States said they could live. It was a thousand miles that they had to travel in bitter winter, 15 1,000 Cherokees took that walk, 4,000 of them died along the way, and now that, that journey is famously called the Trail of Tears. Ad hominem, when we take the humanity out, you can see what happens. So let's go back to the Bible. So we all have heard kind of the term Samaria, Samaritans. Basically, there was a north and south problem in Israel too. Basically, the Samaritans were northern Jews. Who were they? The Samaritan were half Jew, half Gentile. The race came after the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. So certain people from the nation of Israel stayed behind, and then they basically intermarried, and so they were half and half. And they basically were looked down so bad in the Jewish culture. They were almost the outcasts. They did not intermingle. These were people who basically worshipped the same God and had a lot of similar beliefs. However, they did not mix that north and the south. And there were a lot of times when the Samaritans were actually not viewed, first of all, they weren't viewed as equals, but not even viewed as human. Now, what did Jesus do in that political arena? He talked to them. He talked to them. There is a story of him talking to a woman at the well who was a Samaritan. And she says, how are you a Jew talking to me? She was so shocked. Then there's also the wonderful story that is um, basically immortalized on Loma Linda University campus. It's a, if you've never seen it, it's a beautiful um, statue in the middle of campus, really depicting the story or parable that Jesus said. The Good Samaritan is a story of humanizing the Samaritan. Basically, in this story that Jesus tells, there was some, a guy that was attacked on a road in a desolate place, and people, basically Jews, were passing him, passing him, passing him, and did not help this guy that was bleeding and half dead. And here comes a Samaritan who picks this guy up, nursed his wounds, put him in basically a hotel, said paid for his bill, and took care of him. What was Jesus trying to do? He was trying to humanize and say we are brothers and sisters. 
a person who is preaching like that, I will believe what you say because I believe and see what you do. In the United States, we are dealing with a lot of things. And in Jesus' time, so was he. If you look at some of the statistics, you see my fists clenching. Five times more black Americans are incarcerated for the same crime compared to their, basically, colleagues. Four times LGBTQ plus youth are more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. Twenty times U.S. crop workers are more likely to die from illnesses related to heat stress than U.S. civilian workers overall. Twenty times. One million plant and animal species are on the verge of extinction due to human activity. Now, I'll stop there because there's another saying. I love, like, quotes and sayings. There's a Native American proverb that actually says, the earth was not given to you by your parents. It is borrowed from your children. You have not been handed the earth by your ancestors. It is on loan to you by your children. Twenty-five percent of Native American women, this was in the 1970s, were involuntarily sterilized in the 1970s because of the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970. Involuntarily sterilized, some as young as age 15. Fifteen million of adolescent girls worldwide, age 15 to 19 years, have experienced forced sex. <sighs> What did Jesus do? No matter how you interpret it in art, you saw what he did when people were being abused and taken advantage of. You saw him stand up and speak truth to power. You saw him do this. However, at the same time, he loved, right? And he showed us what to do. Now, I can tell you, let's love. Let's love. That'll solve all problems. Isn't that what the movies tell us? Just love and happy ever after, right? However, what I am here to say that Jesus taught us that love is not just a feeling, it's an action. It makes us do something. The blessed are the poor in spirit. He uplifted. He comforted. He advocated. He showed them righteousness. Not just told them about righteousness, he showed them righteousness. He bestowed mercy. He recruited the pure in heart. He recruited the peacemakers. He healed the persecuted. He rescued. He was an active, loving person. He didn't just tell us he loved us. He shows us he loves us. So isn't that an example of what we should do today? Now, when we have that active kind of love, that love that changes things, not the thing that we just say to people, I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's an act of work in progress, isn't it? Because changing is not easy. When you love like that, it makes you uncomfortable. When you love people, sometimes you are put into a position of saying, 
I might have gotten it wrong, and I might need to say sorry. You know how I was talking about these clenched fists? It's a famous quote by Indra Gandhi that says, you cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. We have to open ourselves to being wrong. We have to open ourselves to being uncomfortable. Do you think it was comfortable for Jesus to stand up and do all these things and have people hate him and do all kinds of things? We like to think that he was like this beloved person walking around. They were people that were after him. You cannot. And when I say love requires action and change, it requires you to look inwardly. Now, when we talk about systems of oppression, we talk about power, right, a lot of times. And I will say all of us in this room are in a place of power. And you might say, well, no, not really. I don't feel like I'm in a place. Anybody who is on social media has the power to rip someone apart or to build someone up. We have the power to do that. So I'm not saying, you know, some of us may be on councils like the Sanhedrin and be, you know, within these big rooms that make big decisions about people. And I want to encourage all of you who sit in those places to be uncomfortable and advocate like Jesus did. But you can advocate and love like Jesus did in, at work on the street when you're seeing injustice. You can do it in your home when you are in a place of power. Instead of breaking down, you build up. These are the things. We are all in a place of power at some point, and we have to use that power like Jesus did. That power of love. Elie Wiesel, who was basically, he was a Holocaust survivor, and he has written books and has done marvelous things. He has a quote that I actually love. He says, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there never, must never be a time when we fail to protest. Now, you might not be the picketing protester, but all of us can create change because all of us have hearts that probably do need to be changed and to looked at to recover from some of the things that we have done, we have said, and we are living. Jesus said to love each other. And when we have this whole absurd world of ours, and let's make no mistake about it, it's absurd, right? This absurd world, we have to love absurdly. We have to love like it doesn't make any sense. We have to love when it is ridiculous, and we have to love and we have to change because, like I said, love creates change over and over and over again. Another quote I want to share with you from Maya Angelou. She says, do the best you can because I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm saying it to anybody else. Do the best you can until you know better. And then what do you do when you know better? And I will say, Olivia, Olivia, when you know better, do better. And we have a perfect example in Jesus Christ 
of what to do, not just what to say, but what to do. In hot political beds, in hot, hot, hot controversies, in a world where human rights are being violated right and left, not by just people in homes, but our lawmakers, it all comes down to this. Love. And my charge to me and to all of us is to do better.